You're listening to a podcast from Genesis Church in Phoenix, Arizona. You can find out more about Genesis Church at genesis-church.com. Thanks for listening. Good morning to each and every one of you. It's uh, good to see some old friends. Uh, emphasizing the old part, uh, some of you are even older than I am, but uh, it is good to see you all again. Uh, when we were driving in today, uh, Sherry said, well, does it feel kind of like, you know, we were here before? I said, it just feels like coming home. So it's really glad uh, glad to be here. Glad that Ryan asked me to uh, preach uh, this Sunday and to, to be with you. Uh, so I was here uh, from the summer of 2016 to the spring of 2017 when Ryan came. And Ryan was, uh, uh, when we were building the church at Hope Covenant Church in Chandler, uh, we called him to be our worship pastor, worship leader, right out of college. So, I mean, he still had pizza stains on his T-shirt, uh, you know, when he got to our church. And, uh, and that's where he began his ministry there with us at uh, Hope back in, wow, way back in 2002, something like that. So anyway, it's great to be here today. Thank you for having me. Well, I just invite you, if you will, to, if you feel comfortable doing that, just extending your hands as kind of a, a sign of, of receptivity to the Word of God today. Father, we pray now that you would uh, help our hearts to be ready to receive your Word. Lord, I want to thank you for worship and the way that Carmel led us into your presence. I pray now, Lord, that uh, this word that we proclaim would uh, go deeply into our souls and it would transform us from the inside out. Thank you, Father, this, Father, for this opportunity to share God's word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a time of dramatic change. That's not news to any of you. Uh, most people in the United States carry a computer in their pockets. Crime is predicted before it occurs. COVID has changed our sense of well-being, and masks, it seems, may be here to stay. Workplaces are outsourced, independent, and often at home. The Internet is reaching the poorest people on the planet. Seafood will now mostly be farmed in the oceans instead of fished, and I don't like that at all. And Tom Brady will not be playing football. Maybe, maybe, right? 3D printing will increase and online education will surpass conventional colleges. And none of this shocks us. We all know almost intuitively that it all will happen, change. But there's one event that no one saw coming except for the sovereign Lord of the universe. No one could accurately predict this coming trend. It was so radical, it was beyond everyone's comprehension. Jesus predicted the start of something new when he shared in Matthew 16, 18, these words. Now I say to you that you are Peter. He's talking to Simon Peter's disciple, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The church was God's radical idea 
to change the world. I still believe with all my heart that the local church is God's way of saying yes to his creation. And the church will not be defeated. Someone told me as we were gathering for prayer from, with the worship team that somewhere nearby there's a conference that's kind of uh, satanic in nature. Has anybody heard anything like that? And they're going to be praying against the churches. But can I say this again? Jesus said, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. We have nothing to be afraid of. Greater is in me, who is in me who is in, than he is in the world, right? Now, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, about a year after Jesus declared this, uh, Pentecost happened. So Jews, and Pastor Ryan already, probably already preached about this, but Jews from all over the country and really surrounding countries within several hundred miles came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And when they got there, all the believers gathered together. Now, this wasn't a lot. Maybe we know at least 512, right? But uh, there was probably several hundred believers gathered together. And when they did, they heard the sound from heaven like a mighty wind. Flames or tongues of fire settled upon them and they began, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in other tongues. Now, these weren't just glossolalia. These weren't just... Uh, just gibberish. This was actual languages for the people that were there could hear in their own language what was being said. It was amazing. So then all these people started running over to the, where the disciples were gathered, where these believers were. I said, what's going on? Are you drunk? What's, what's happening? I mean, we're hearing this language and we're hearing the language that we're familiar with. The disciples are speaking. And then Peter got up and he began to preach. He preached the gospel from the Old Testament, right? And at the end of his message, he said, uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And listen to verse 41. We're going to read our text in just a moment. Those who believed what Peter said, remember Peter was the rock, were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Now that's pretty good country preaching, right? <laughs> 3,000 added to the church that day. The church was born. The start of something new. Remarkable. Life-altering. Culture-altering change. Now, what was this first century community like? What did they look like? What did they do? How did they live their lives? Well, let's read our text this morning. This is the text that uh, Ryan assigned me. Uh, Acts chapter 2. And we're going to be reading verses 42 through 47. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Hear the word of God for the people of God at Grace Community Church. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the, temples, at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Isn't that remarkable? Now, we're not talking here about 
a building or an ideal. Uh, we're talking about a movement. Whenever the New Testament talks about the church, it's talking about a movement, something that's actually happening. Now, the word there for church is ecclesia, ecclesia. And it means literally a gathering of those who are summoned. Now, one of the questions you need to ask yourself as we're going through this message today is, have I been summoned? Have I been called? Because that's what this early church was, a gathering of people who had been summoned, called to something. Now, let me, I'll just take a second and just go off script here for a minute and, and, and tell you what I think that means. So, in the New Testament, uh, we, today we all talk about Christianity, and that's great. It's a great word. I love that. But in the New Testament, the word Christian is only used three times. And two of the times it's used in kind of a derogatory sense. You know, those people were Christians, you know, Christ followers. Right? But the word that Jesus used consistently was disciple. Now, that's a whole different game than a Christian. Now, if you were to get 100 people and line them up and say, okay, what is a Christian? 100 people in our world today, you'd get 100 different answers. Well, it's somebody that believes in God. It's somebody that believes in Jesus. It's somebody that believes that you need to give your heart to Jesus. It's somebody that's uh, in the Western world. It's somebody that's a Republican. Really? Somebody that's a Democrat. Oh, is that right? You know, it's somebody, in other words, it can be anything you want it to mean. Anything. But when you say the word disciple, you're saying something like this. Jesus is asking me as a follower of his to do something. And it may... Dwayne, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to think. This is what I want you to feel. This is how I want you to act. And I'm getting this from God's word. And, I'm, and, I'm, and before he can even finish asking me what I want to do or what he wants me to do, what's my answer, Sherry Cross? Yes. yes. What? But I haven't even finished telling you what I want from you, Dwayne. Yes. That's what a disciple says. Yes. I'm in. I'm going to do it. That's what a summoned person is. Because Jesus never talked about, you've got to accept Jesus into your heart as a personal Lord and Savior. That's a good phrase. It's wonderful. We use it. We've used it. Here's what Jesus always said. Come follow me. It's not just praying a prayer and checking a box. Come follow me. Be my disciple. Say yes to whatever I ask you to do. So the church is the gathering of, of those who have been called to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus. So let me go back to my other question. Have you been summoned? Have you been called? That's what this movement is about. Now, why were these people gathered? And why does this matter? People that have said, yes, I will follow you. Yes, I am your disciple. What did these people do? Well, let me just go through a few things this morning. The first is this. They were a devoted community. Okay, in the very first phrase, all the believers devoted themselves, right? Now, the word devoted is an interesting word in the original language. It means persistent pursuing. You're devoted to something. You're devoted to golf, right? You persistently pursue it. You devoted to a person, you persistently pursue that person. 
That's what devotion means. Now, so let's look at that. What were they devoted to? The first thing they said was we were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, what was the apostles' teaching? The apostles' teaching was basically the Old Testament, right? The Torah, wisdom literature, poetry, prophecy, history, all of the Old Testament literature, which is all good. So they were devoted to that. But it wasn't just that. When, when Luke, the writer of Acts, was talking about being devoted to the apostles' teaching, he was mostly thinking of what Peter just got done preaching about. And that was Jesus and him crucified and him resurrected and him coming again. So when they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to all of the Old Testament, but primarily their devotion landed on the very teaching about Jesus Christ. That's what Peter preached at Pentecost. That's when 3,000 people came, and he preached from the Old Testament. He said Joel and Zechariah. He quoted some of those. But he said, it's Jesus who came and died for your sins. It's Jesus who rose from the dead. It's Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father, and it's Jesus who's coming again one day for his church. It's Jesus. So they were devoted to that. Now, the last word that Jesus gave to his disciples was go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Okay, so that's what we're, we're about. That's what we're about. As a gathered, summoned group of followers, of disciples, we are called to go and preach the good news of Jesus. So this devotion to God's word. Listen to what J Jesus said in Matthew 4.4. Man must not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I just want you to view this a little bit differently. I grew up in a church that was very legalistic. You know, my hope is built on nothing less than Schofield Notes and Scripture Press. I mean, that's what I, what I was raised on, right? And, and so uh, I, I, I tend to really, I really want to move away from the legalism and move into the grace that I experience in my life, right? And so one way to do it, because Bible reading when I was a kid was uh, my parents and my pastor, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to. And as a teenager, I said, I don't want to, I don't want to. And, and so there's got to be something. Well, here, here's a different way of looking at this. Look at this as, as, as food, okay? Now, there's different ways of eating our food. There's the Super Bowl day way where we eat... Christine, right? Bad food <laughs> all day. And we love it, okay? So there's that. And that's one way of eating food, just consistently eating and eating and eating and eating. And then there's other times when we just come to a feast. And it's beautiful and we enjoy it. My wife does these tea parties and it's just wonderful and beautiful. And, we, and there's other times we gobble and other times we snack, right? Well, sometimes you just need to see God's word as food. Sometimes you need to feast on it. Now, each Sunday, uh, your pastor, Ryan, uh, comes to you. He has prepared during the week, as God has led him, a message from God's word. And he comes and he prepares this feast. And then he bids you come and eat. Now, you don't have to come and eat. You don't have to partake of anything he says. But he calls you. He's prepared this meal and it's for you to come and eat. 
So there's this feast way of enjoying God's word. You can listen to podcasts. You can listen to sermons online. You can listen to all kinds of things to get the, God, the word of God in you. But then there's times when you just kind of gobble, right? You're busy, you're rushed. So you throw a little uh, a Bible into you real fast as you're heading out for the day. And people say, well, that's really bad. That's not bad. That's just gobbling. That's okay. Sometimes you snack just a little bit here, a little bit. But in all of these things, when you enjoy the word of God, you do it to fill you up, to make you alive, to make you new. Man must not live by bread alone, but by every word that can, comes from the mouth of God. So we need to persistently pursue the word of God. Gobbling, feasting, snacking, however you do it, all of those things at different times, persistently pursue the word of God. Now, that's devotion to, to the apostles' teaching. So what would Jesus say to us? We are a community of believers. And I hope that many of us are not just believers, but we're followers, we're disciples of Jesus. We've been summoned. And we gather together to build each other up and to prepare ourselves to take the good news to the world. That's why we come. So if Jesus were to come to this assembly and stand before you, and, and notice that you are devoted to the apostles' teaching. What would he say about that? Well, I think this is what he would say. He'd say, that's the way my people live. That's who they are. <laughs> that's what they do. They're, they're devoted to my teaching. They're devoted to my life, to my ministry, to my words. They're devoted to the word of God. That's who my people are. Well, what else was this community of believers devoted to? Well, they were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship. Now, fellowship does not mean coffee after church, and there's nothing wrong with coffee after church. Nothing, especially if there's with cookies. Uh, it's not uh, about a potluck. It's not about a place. The word fellowship is about persistently pursuing each other. Okay? Persistently pursuing each other. The word that's used is koinonia. You're familiar with that word. And it means an intimate fellowship. It's the same word that's used in different places in Scripture. Get this for marriage. Okay, it's that level of commitment, right? That level of life-on-life -life relationship. That level of I'm committed to you and I'm committed to, each, uh, you know, to, to the body of Christ. That's how we do it as assembly of summoned people, an assembly of followers, of disciples of Jesus Christ. We fellowship together. There's that level of commitment. Now, I know you do groups in your church, and uh, that's where you get together and you fellowship and you do this life-on-life -life relationship because you know what? You can't do life-on-life -life just on Sunday mornings at 10. It doesn't happen. That fellowship is that persistently pursuing each other in that kind of relationship. That really, really matters. So um, we have um, the first church I served, Mount Mule Covenant Church in San Diego, was the church that Sherry grew up in and that I was the youth pastor in. I went to seminary, North Park Seminary, came back, and I was, I was there as their pastor in, in 1978. But when I was there as a youth pastor in 1972 to 74, uh, Sherry and I uh, led a small group. But those days we called them a Bible study group. And it was young, young, young marrieds. No 
okay? So there was like 12 or 14 couples and a thousand children, and it was chaotic, and it was wonderful, and we lived our lives together, we ate together, we fellowshiped together, we cried together, we laughed together, we encouraged each other, we challenged each other, we Bibled each other, we did it all together. That was life-on-life relationship. So fast forward. So last, uh, I forget when it was, last fall, uh, Mount McGill Covenant Church had their 60th anniversary of a church, okay? Sherry's mom and dad were charter members in that church, uh, April of 1961. And so we did our 60th anniversary, and they asked me to come and be the speaker. So I, I did that, I loved it. So we were doing fellowship after one of the events, and we had this whole table of people, and they were all people from our young marriage group. Do you know what we call ourselves now? Young Mary's group. <laughs> we're all in our 60s and 70s, but, but we did life together, and we are lifelong friends, persistently pursuing fellowship. You can't do that just by showing up on Sundays at 10 o'clock, persistently pursuing fellowship. I have a friend. Uh, well, first of all, let me read this quote from Jeremy McLean. God paid to big, God paid too big of a price for us not to fellowship with the other people he died for. Really matters. So my friend uh, Mark, um, really close friend of mine, uh, uh, he was in the church uh, at Hope when I was there for many years. And Mark is really big into and leads a lot of uh, recovery ministries. And so he's been in recovery for 30 some years. And does tremendous, he has a lot of sponsors, sponsees, he, he leads meetings, he does all of, he's really in the community. He's also in the church, right? So he's in both of those areas. So he and his wife start going to a small group, and uh, in the small group, of course, uh, Mark and Tracy, both being in recovery ministries, just kind of blurt out their lives, right? You know, here's our failures, here's our flaws, here's how God has redeemed us, and you know, it's great. And, and he said, after they did that, he, they, he, was excited. he said it was crickets. Uh-oh. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't a recovery ministry group, is it? Uh, these are some people that still wear some pretty significant masks. These are some people, the Greek word for mask is upakritai. Right? What does that sound like? Hypocrite. People that still are guarded. I'm not sure I can let you in. Life-on-life relationship is being honest, being open, being transparent, and experiencing that pursuit of that kind of relationship. Now, what would Jesus say about a community of believers doing life-on-life relationships that go both, go both deep and wide? He'd say, well, that's how my people live. That's just normal. That's how my followers, my disciples the ones who were summoned, that's how my people live. Well, what else were they devoted to? The third thing they were devoted to is breaking of bread. Now, in the text, you see it, but it's very true in other passages in the New Testament that there's something important about both communion, which, by the way, we're going to participate in today, communion and just eating a meal, right? At OBH or at your home or somewhere else. Those are both sacred things, right? So we know the importance of communion, right? 
That's where the Lord told us, hey, whenever you gather, I want you to do this to remember what I've done, remember my life. But uh, what's interesting is that uh, communion was part of the Jewish, not communion the way we know it, but kind of sharing the wine, was part of the Jewish community. And they did that at weddings to symbolize when the uh, bride and the groom would share that wine, that, um, that communion that was intimate and that was forever. Okay? Every time you take communion, it's like renewing your vows. Cherry and I, over what, three times over the years, we've renewed our vows, something like that. And every time we do, we go back and say, okay, this, this is why we got married in the first place, August 1st, 1970. You know, I was 21 years old. She was 19. We said yes. But over the years, we need to remind ourselves that we said yes. Every time you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're saying yes. I'm in again. Maybe I've forgotten the last month. Maybe I haven't been close to God for a long time. But when I let that cracker and that juice touch my lips, I'm renewing my commitment to God. I'm saying yes. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. The table fellowship of Christians implies obligation. It is our daily bread that we eat, not my own. We share our bread, thus we are firmly bound to one another, not only in the spiritual, in the spirit, but in our whole physical being. The one bread that is given to our fellowship links us together in a firm covenant. No one dares go hungry as long as another has bread. Isn't that beautiful? When we share in the Lord's Supper, we're going to do that today. And when you do that today, I want you, as God is your helper, to say, Lord, I'm renewing my covenant to you. I'm renewing my promise to you. I'm renewing this, this, this idea of persistently pursuing Jesus with all my heart. And I'm doing that today during communion. But this, this text also implies just hospitality. As I told you, Sherry loves to do these fancy tea parties. And, but when she does them, there's this, she prays over each seat and she uh, always allows room for the Holy Spirit to be there. And it's just a, a beautiful way when you, when you break bread with someone, there's something that's happening there, something that's real. Uh, one Easter, um, when we were at Hope, uh, we invited anybody in the church that didn't have a place to go for Easter, right? And um, so we had a bunch of people at our house, and in the backyard we had 50-some people. It was great. And one of the guys that came was Rick Greenlaw. His wife came to our church. His wife found Christ in our church, but he was one of these guys, right? Okay, it's okay for my wife, but, you know, come on, I'm a guy, right? And so, but he came. as the first time I think a lot of people even met him. And during that time he found out, two things, that Christians really are kind of weird, and secondly, they really do love me. They care. And I remember sitting there talking to Rick, and it wasn't long after that that Rick gave his heart to the Lord, and it happened over a meal. It happened over sharing fellowship, sharing a life together, something really, really beautiful. I, uh, when I was a pastor at Mount McGill, this is back now, in 78 to 85, I was there. And once a month, I would go over and do a communion service at the health facility. Now, the health facility, you know, a lot of the people there were in wheelchairs and uh, weren't fully capable of, of doing things physically. 
but I, I had the, the wise idea that I was going to serve communion regardless, right? And so I was going to be a good pastor, and I was going to just go to each one. If somebody needed help, I would place the cracker on their, uh, on their lip if, I, if they wanted the drink like that. And I came to one guy, one old guy. He was, I don't know what was uh, going on with him, but uh, when I had this plate of crackers, he just kind of reached in with both hands. <laughs> now, I'm like 29 years old. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? And, 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 and he just starts to eat, and the gal next to him said, he just, he just wants more of Jesus. Sometimes we have to remember that uh, the idea of persistently pursuing Jesus happens when we break bread on a Sunday morning and when we break bread in our homes. Now, if Jesus were to say to assembly of people that have been summoned and called to follow Jesus and see us the way we live our lives and and, and what would he want to say to us? And I think it's the same thing. He would say, well, that, that's, that's the way my people live. That's just the way they live. They're my followers. They're my disciples. This isn't anything extraordinary. That's the way my people live. But there's a fourth thing, and that was what? Prayer. Jesus teaches about prayer using, have you ever noticed this? Communal language. Our Father, who art in heaven, give us this bread, our daily bread. Forgive us our, our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Prayer is a declaration that we can't, but God can. Sometimes prayer is simply this, persistently pursuing Jesus. Try, try praying sometime without asking him anything. You know, he's not a cosmic Santa Claus. Come on. Give God a break. You know, God, here's my list of a thousand things. He already knows it, and it's okay to pray it. But just persistently pursue Jesus. My wife's wonderful about this. She spends, I go to the gym, and she stays home and prays for me that I will survive, right? <laughs> but she, 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 she's there pursuing, persistently pursuing Jesus every morning. The church that I served, after I left here, I served the Bridge Church in Gilbert, for a year, and then uh, for 18 months, I served Grace Community Church in Oro Valley, Tucson, for 18 months, uh, where my former um, associate pastor, David Hillis, resigned there, and I filled in for 18 months. One thing I noticed about that church was their prayer life. It was incredible, right, honey? It was amazing. They would have about every quarter, or sometimes sooner, they would have a prayer vigil, and I don't know about everybody, but it seemed like everybody signed up for a 15-minute slot over 24 hours. And those people would pray. And it was just powerful. So last uh, week, we had our quarterly uh, pastors cluster. So all the covenant pastors in Phoenix and Tucson uh, get together, um, and uh, we share our lives together. We do fellowship, and, and, and we pray together. And the new pastor down there, Sam Jurphy, who came, he was the pastor that came after uh, I finished there. Uh, uh, Sam said, hey, let's go out to the prayer garden. They have a beautiful prayer garden overlooking, the, what's the mountain they look at? The Catalinas. And it's just an spectacular, and we went out there, listen to this, because it involves you. We went out there, and we prayed for you. And we prayed for all of our churches. And we knew that we can't, but God can 
And in that moment, all these covenant pastors, these men and women gathered around, there was like 20 of us, persistently pursuing Jesus. Well, that's a gathering of the summoned ones, devoted to pursuing Jesus and his body. And what would Jesus say about this community? He'd say, well, that's the way my people live. Well, there's something more in our text. I don't want to do this quickly, but I think it's really important. They were not only a devoted community, they were a unified community. Why were they so united? Because they had a common goal, a common pursuit. One thing that they passionately, purposefully, and persistently pursued. That was Jesus. Their relationship with Jesus and the fact that Jesus, once you become a follower, once you become devoted, once you become a summoned one, you become an ambassador of Jesus Christ. That's your job. That's your job description. To take the good news of Christ's redeeming love to that next person in your sphere of influence. Not the whole world. I mean, we're not Billy Graham's, but in your sphere of influence, taking that good news Jesus. So we are called together around that one common theme. That's what, not all Christians don't do that. But disciples, what do they say? That was terrible. What do they, what do they say? They say yes. They say yes, of course. Whatever. I'm terrified to tell my neighbor about Jesus, but I can invite him to church at least and say, come and sit with me. I, I can do that. We are a summoned people. And we are called to be unified around this good news that we have within us and that we carry to others as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. See, the church today, this is one of the saddest things. You can talk to Pastor Ryan about this too. Uh, we are brokenhearted about what's happening to the church. And it's not just about COVID. COVID has dramatically hit all churches. About 30% of people that were regular church attenders are not now. That doesn't mean they won't come back eventually, but... I mean, you can see that in your own congregation, right? So that, that's throughout all, all denominations, that's the case. But um, the problem with the church today is not COVID. It, it's division. It's, divi it's, it's arguing about little kingdom things, little kingdoms, kingdom of man things, and not kingdom of God things. I, I told you when I was here in 2016 around the um, uh, election time, I don't know if you remember this, but I told you because I heard some things out in the hallways out there. I'm not going to say who it was, right? Uh, arguing about whether we should vote for Trump or Hillary. And, uh, and there were arguments. And I remember telling you very clearly because I knew I couldn't get fired. <laughs> you will not find the truth in politics and say, listen to this, save your greatest passion for Jesus. Don't waste it on politics. Vote, be a good citizen, all that. But you, you li literally must save your greatest passion for Jesus. So, don't argue about how much water you need in baptism. Don't argue about red and blue, or black and white, or mass or no vax, or vax or no vax. Remember it says in our text that they found favor with all people? That means they weren't talking about politics. They found favor with all people. 
because we are focused on one thing, Christ and him crucified, resurrected, and coming again. And that truth that's in us, because we're disciples, not just Christians, that truth that's within us, man, we're going to take that out and share that with the world. Listen to what Jesus said. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other, just as I have loved you. And you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The way that we gain unity in the church is by loving Jesus with all our heart, because that's what disciples do, and loving each other. And listen to this. this Christianity is the only religion in the world that does this. Loving your enemies. Loving those who disagree with you. Loving those who are disagreeable. See, the early church spread like wildfire in the first 300 years after Jesus. And here, the only thing, they, they had no leverage politically, they had no leverage economically, they had no leverage in any way. These are poor people, uneducated for the most part. The only thing they had was the gospel, and the only delivery system they had was love. That's it. Loving other people. The Christians were the ones, when, when the Roman government would take children who were born with defects or deformities, they'd take them down, down the river and leave them there. That's what they did. Okay? That's what the Romans did in the first century. Christians were the ones that went down and picked them up. See, because love requires that. So, so if Jesus were to come to this assembly of summoned ones and look at you and know that you are absolutely committed to unity, even though that means you disagree with each other, sometimes that's okay. But you're absolutely committed to unity because you have focus on one thing, the gospel and taking that gospel to the world. Here's what Jesus would say. Well, that's how my people love. It's who they are. <laughs> it's not tricky. It's not kind of, you know, weird. It's, that's how my people love. And then the last thing is this. They were a growing community. They have Pentecost, they added 3,000 people. Daily, it says in our text, they were adding people daily to this group. Now, people have talked about this passage being about communism. That's ridiculous. What they did was they took care of each other. <laughs> You know, they, they, if they needed to, they would put money in, say, hey, here's some money. We're going to take care of this family. We're going to take care of these people. Okay, that's what they did. That's how Jesus' people live and love. So Pentecost, they were devoted to this idea of, of growing, uh, not only spiritually, but growing in numbers because the world so desperately needs to hear about Jesus. And, and when they were loving each other this way in those first 300 years when the church was exploding, in spite of Nero's circus where, people, where Christians were being mauled and all these bad things that were happening to Christians, it just continued to grow and grow and grow. And grow. It's because of the love that they shared with Jesus and for each other. I, I, you, can, you can just see the world in, in a community like that. Let's say a community like this. If you love Jesus the way we're talking about, you loved each other the way we're talking about, the community here in, in North Phoenix, in Paradise Valley, which can appear over the edge and say, I want, I want that. I, I don't know where they got it. I don't know where it comes from, but I, I see the way those married people love each other. I see the way those children honor their parents. I, I, I see that, and I want that. I, I don't know, know much about Jesus, but I want that. 
See, when Jesus recognizes this and sees this in us, sees the way that we love each other, we grow. We just grow. Let me close with this one story. So at, at Mount McGill, again, when I was back a youth pastor, this is from 1972 to 74, um, something was happening then. That was the Jesus people time, if you recall. We had uh, a youth group of over 100 kids. And this is a church of about 200, 200 adults. And these kids came from everywhere, and they were coming to Christ every week. I, I was clueless as to what I was doing. I just showed up. And Sherry and I were young marrieds, and we didn't know what we were doing, but we showed up, and God did incredible things. Well, the, the elders had the idea that because only 20 people come to Sunday evening service because it's terribly boring, um, we're going to make the kids come, right? So we usually had youth group Sunday night at 7 after this evening service. I'd go to the evening service because I, I was paid to. You know, uh, <laughs> I was paid to be good. Some of you are good for nothing, right? You know, so anyway, <laughs> But so, so, so I said, oh, that's a bad idea. These kids, they're going to be bored to death. Ah, uh, no, we think, oh, okay. So I told the kids, before youth group, you got to come to church. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's you know, terrible when the youth pastor says, I'm sorry you have to go to church. But I'm sorry. So the kids started coming to church. No shoes. Hair down to their shoulders. You know, all the hippie clothes that you can imagine. Uh, girls dressed inappropriately. I mean, all these things. These, these are kids that were just coming to Jesus and didn't know what they was going on, but they were doing whatever they could. And after that first Sunday, uh, an old deacon, his name was Oscar, came up to me. This black suit and tie, you know, wingtips, you know, straight, you know, retired covenant pastor. And he said, Dwayne, this is terrible. These kids are, this is wrong. They're not dressed properly. They're not wearing the right clothes. It's, it's just wrong. You've got to get these kids straightened out. They're disrespectful. I said, Oscar, what do you mean disrespectful? They li actually listened to a really bad sermon. I didn't say that. But they sat there and they listened. You know, they listened. And he said, no, no, it's disrespectful the way they dress and everything. I, I don't want to see it. I said, Oscar, please, I beg you. These kids are coming to Jesus. Let's don't do this. Let's don't make this about what they're wearing. Let's, let's make this about you. He said, I'm sorry. He said, I, 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 just, I just don't. I said, listen, would you do me one favor? I said, he said, okay. I said, just pray about it. Until next week, okay? He said, okay, I'll pray that. A week passes, I tell Sherry, oh man, I'm going to get reamed out by Oscar again. Kids come to church. After church, I see Oscar um, uh, come in from the back. And um, he had a severe black suit on, tie, and bare feet. Little, white, wrinkled feet. That was one of the most powerful gospel statements I'd ever seen from an 80-something year old man that said, I care more about reaching these kids for Jesus than about my footwear. If Jesus were to come to our church, to this church, and see this assembly of summoned ones, assembly of Christ followers, of, of disciples, not Christians, of disciples, of followers of Jesus, this is what he, what he would say. Of course, this is how my people live. This is how my people love. Go and do likewise. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, this is a very, very hard call. When you call us to be this kind of a community, 
oh man, it's so much easier to be a, a regular attender. It's so much easier to be a, a red or a blue Christian. It's so much easier to just go through the motions. But a disciple, a one who is summoned to live the gospel and to show the gospel, that's a whole different thing. Father, my prayer for the Genesis Church, this church that I love so much. My prayer for Ryan, the pastor that I love so much. This church would be exactly that kind of church. That Jesus would stand and say, of course. Of course. This is how my people live. This is how my people love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.